Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence and hatred that some people may find disturbing. What is your emergency? Hi, my daughter just uh, texted me from school. She's at Marjorie Stillman Douglas in Park Lane, and she says there's an active shooter. Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School is being shot up. He's being shot up. And he said, shot, shot, shot. I heard five pops. He was just very focused. He was very focused on what he was doing. Possible shots fired at Stillman Douglas High School. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God. He got into the 1200 building because that door was unlocked and unstaffed and that we say that that is a security failure. They're feeling in pain and they're questioning their own existence. They're wondering why they got to live and these other kids didn't. I now struggle every day with the reality that I didn't get to tell Jamie one last time that I love her. This reality is why I'm here today. This immeasurable grief and suffering, I am left to wonder, what if? If we can't protect our children in schools, then who can we protect? This is Stoppable. The true crime podcast that explores the riveting and dramatic stories of people who become enthralled with the idea of mass killing to achieve their ends. In examining these cases, you will walk in the shoes of the perpetrators and travel on their journey as our team of mass murder and terrorism experts analyze the actions of people preparing to commit atrocities. I'm Tony McAleer, and joining me now is Humera Khan. Humera Khan is the president and co-founder of Muflihun. She's a subject matter expert in preventing, countering, and mitigating extremist violence and hate. Previously, Humera was the strategic advisor to the Assistant Secretary General of the UN Security Council Counterterrorism Committee Executive Directorate. Her subject matter expertise is sought by multiple agencies and organizations in the United States and around the world. Tony spent 15 years in white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements, starting as a skinhead and evolving to leadership positions. Since leaving the white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements, Tony has worked closely in forming law enforcement and the government, including attorney generals and senior staff at the Department of Homeland Security. Tony has testified before Congress and was at the Paris summit for the Christchurch call with the Prime Minister of New Zealand. He is the author of The Cure for Hate, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. It was Valentine's Day. The teenager was at a friend's house where he had been couch surfing. He texted a former girlfriend. You will always know I love you. That afternoon, he left his friend's home and waited for his Uber ride. He had saved $3.57 by choosing Uber Pool, which means some random person may have shared the ride with him if their destination had been nearby. When the Toyota RAV4 pulled up, he climbed into the back with his backpack and a large black duffel bag. For me, in that time, it was a case, a guitar case. Laura was the Uber driver. He told me that he was going to the, to the music class. The destination was 5901 Pine Island Road. During the 13-minute ride. He asked me if I was from the neighborhood, so from the area. He was on, on, the, on the phone. When they arrived at his destination, the young man gave the Uber driver explicit directions on where to drop him off. 
he knew exactly where he wanted to go. When we arrived to the light, I, the, the app from Uber was showing me that to go straight. And in the light, he told me to, to turn to left. The teenager wanted to be dropped off at the front gate near building 1200. When asked if the teen seemed nervous and anxious when he exited the Uber, the driver said, Yes. Well, that's what I feel. Picking up his backpack and black duffel bag, the 19-year-old walked towards the school from where he had been expelled the previous year. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. In September 1998, that same teenager had been born to a drug-addicted sex worker, Brenda. The birth mother soon gave up the infant for adoption to an older couple, Linda and Roger. They had struggled with fertility issues and had arranged a private adoption, paying the birth mother $50,000 through an attorney. 17 months later, Brenda, the birth mother, gave birth to another son. Linda and Roger paid an additional $15,000 to adopt that child as well. In the early 2000s, Linda and Roger moved with their two toddler boys to Broward County, Florida. At the age of three, a little before his fourth birthday, the older child was admitted to a county preschool. He was assessed to be developmentally delayed in social-emotional and language skills. The county created what's known as an IEP. That stands for Individualized Education Plan. Its goal is to ensure that children receive the help they need to meet their developmental goals. And it provides parents with tools and strategies to implement at home as well. The child was assigned a special education teacher who worked with the toddler on his delays. Here, she is describing her observations of the youngster in a specialized classroom setting that provided accommodations for his and other children's challenges. He would push children, would try, would scratch at them, would topple over furniture. He would stay away from other children, and if they got too close to him, he would basically pounce. That's what a lot of his abortion looked like. Finney was a close friend of the mother at the time. Out of the clear blue sky, like he would start acting like a lion, okay? And he would go right in your face, go, ah, like this, you know? And, uh, and, and he'd run around the house, and he would do it to everybody, not just one person, you know? And when you tell him to stop, he, 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 he wouldn't listen. On August 11, 2004, the child, now almost six years old, ran into the kitchen. His mother, Linda, was making lunch. He was crying. And she said, what happened? Daddy yelled at you? No, daddy's dead. Research indicates that the two years following the death of a parent is the critical window of opportunity for treatment and therapy for a child. Without it, children may face long-term consequences that surface later in adolescence. Linda, dealing with her own grief and depression, did not obtain therapy for her elder son until four years later. Contrary to the recommendations of the IEP, Linda did not implement the structure at home that his behavior required. In the years following his father's death, Linda's older son attended third and fourth grade in a school that provided smaller class sizes, better teacher-to-student ratios, and a faculty with the required training for working with children with social, emotional, and other learning challenges. 
Here is his teacher in those grades. He could be very disruptive. He could be cursing and angry and throwing things, disrespect. Sometimes he even ripped up some of the other students' work or ruined a project, which would be, of course, very upsetting for them. This pattern of violence and destruction continued to escalate and intensify as Linda's sons grew into adolescence and attended middle school and high school. Over the course of several years, Linda reached out to the police 43 times, begging for help with both her sons' troubling behavior. As the older brother entered middle school, the younger brother, Zach, grew larger and stronger than him. Always small for his age, the elder brother was frequently bullied at school. Now the bullying was coming from his younger brother. In a conversation they had as teenagers, Zach, the younger brother, confessed. I know I make it seem like I didn't care about you at all. I know I made it seem like when we were growing up that I hated you. I didn't like you. But truth is, I just didn't want to look like I didn't want to look weak. By middle school, the adolescent had extreme anxiety and trouble making friends. That's also when he found out that he was adopted. And his brother, Zach, was actually his half-brother. And his behavior grew increasingly disruptive and violent. Once he destroyed a bathroom sink. In class, he would draw lewd pictures of people and disturbingly violent images. And it didn't go unnoticed. His teachers were very alarmed by his behavior and obsession with guns and violence. Another insisted that when the middle schooler was in her class, he had to be accompanied by a school administrator. Here is a counselor who worked with the student in middle school. I think over time, his uh, behavior worsened. Nick drew naked stick figures showing body parts and drew pictures of people shooting each other with guns. Nicholas became fixated on death and assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Some questions he asked were, what did it sound like when Lincoln was shot? Did it go pop, pop, pop really fast? Was there blood everywhere after the war? What did they do with all of the bodies? Did people eat them? Here is his middle school principal. It's really, you know, disgusting. Uh, You know, vulgarity is all over the place. How did his teachers feel about the troublesome middle schooler? Some of them were afraid of Carrie was his eighth grade teacher. She talked about the student via streaming service, which was then broadcast. So the audio is a little challenging, but I want you to listen carefully. Trying to get him help and make sure that the environment was safe for the students in the classroom. It didn't feel safe. It didn't feel safe. One day was particularly challenging for that teacher. I quietly tried to calm him down by asking him to follow along with the lesson, and I stood next to him for a few minutes. And he continued to talk, and when I said, I know that you can behave, I've seen you, you're a good kid, he responded by shouting, I'm a bad kid, I want to kill. I'm a bad kid. I want to kill. It was at this time he learned about the mass shooting at Columbine High School. Never a great student, he now began a five-year intensive study of mass shootings like Columbine, Aurora, and Virginia Tech. Dr. Charles Scott is a forensic psychologist. He's thinking about killing people. Uh, He's thinking about school shooters. He's thinking about, for a long time, being a professional school shooter. Like many boys his age, he enjoyed playing the first-person shooter game called Call of Duty. But his enjoyment soon turned into an obsession, as he sometimes played the game for 15 hours straight, 
When he lost a game, he would punch walls and scream obscenities. When he was 15, his mother tried to discipline him by taking away his Xbox. Enraged, he threw his mother against the wall. Soon, he became obsessed with weapons. He began to amass an arsenal of pellet rifles and BB guns. Neighbors reported his troubling use of these weapons. Like something I've never seen before, the way he was running. But he had this gun in his hand. When he entered high school, he joined the junior ROTC program offered by the school. He had aspirations of joining the military after high school. He even took the aptitude test for Army Special Forces. He was bitterly disappointed when he failed. After multiple disciplinary infractions, including not wearing his JROTC uniform, he was expelled from the program in 2017. That same year, he upgraded his arsenal by purchasing a high-capacity semi-automatic rifle for more than $600, the AR-15. Here is the gun shop owner that sold him the weapon. And asked him, what are you going to do with the rifle? And the reply was, I go shooting with my friends on the weekends. I just want my own stuff. By that time, the teenager had already amassed a stockpile of weapons, including three shotguns, three rifles, at least one handgun, and a tactical vest. He also possessed a large variety of hunting knives. His social media presence was inundated with fetishized images of him brandishing the weapons. He posted videos of himself cutting his own arms. And he also posted images of animals he killed. A neighbor told CNN that the students seemed to take pleasure in watching animals in pain. One day, her dog suffered a seizure. He was bending over my dog with a wild look on his face. He just looked excited. He was happy. When he finally looked up and saw me, his whole demeanor changed. One year later, he claimed he heard demons' voices in his head telling him to burn, kill, and destroy. In response to the auditory hallucinations, the teenager self-medicated with marijuana and Xanax. When he failed to take the actions directed by the demons, they then told him to harm himself. The teenager attempted suicide on more than one occasion. Here is a classmate talking to the Washington Post. got suspended a lot of times, and he sold knives in his lunchboxes, and he was expelled. He started posting things on his Instagram, killing animals, stuff like that. He would also bring in the decapitated corpses of the animals he had killed. He seemed to take great pride in what he considered to be an achievement. Around this time, another classmate said he showed him a gun he had brought to school. That classmate never reported the incident to the school or to the police. Other behaviors of Linda's older son went unreported. A bank employee heard him berate Linda, telling her to kill herself or he would kill her. He threatened to set the house on fire and then watch her burn. The banker observed bruises on Linda's wrists from an altercation with her son. The last time she saw Linda alive, the distraught mother said, I don't know what he's going to do. Despite the trauma of raising her troubled and abusive son, Linda was thought to be a devoted mother by friends, neighbors, and therapists. As we've mentioned earlier, his mother had made 43 calls to the police over both her son's violent and troubling behavior. We also know that many neighbors had notified the authorities as well. In 2016, the Florida Department of Children and Families was alerted that the older brother had posted disturbing content on Snapchat. 
That was followed by his receiving treatment from a local mental health clinic. But a few months after he started the treatment, he stopped going. That same year, a fellow student filed a report with the high school administration. The troubled teen possessed guns at home, and he planned to use them. In Florida, there's a law called the Baker Act. It provides the guidelines for committing an individual to a mental health institution without their consent. Stoneman Douglas, like all public high schools in Florida, had a police officer on duty as a school resource officer, or SRO. The SRO works in the school during regular school hours handling all complaints on campus. At Stoneman Douglas, the SRO was Scott Peterson. Peterson and the school administration decided to use the Baker Act to forcibly commit the then high school junior to a psychiatric facility. The next day, Peterson changed his mind. In September 2017, a video blogger in Mississippi found a post on his YouTube channel. It read, I'm going to be a professional school shooter. The vlogger spoke with CNN. Well, when I saw the comment come through my push notifications in YouTube studio, it caught my attention, so I screenshotted it so I could share it with the FBI. Then I reported it to YouTube as a spam. And of course, when you do that, they take the comment down. And then I contacted the FBI. The FBI investigated. But even with the exact spelling of his name, the FBI could not locate the young man with deadly aspirations. The FBI field office in Jackson, Mississippi, received a tip about a comment posted to a YouTube account. There was no additional information about the particular time, location, or further identifiers about the person who posted the comment. FBI Jackson conducted an interview of the person who made the complaint. This person lives in Mississippi, has no connection to South Florida, and has no knowledge about the person who posted the comment. The FBI called it, quote, a dead end. On November 1, 2017, Linda went to a CVS clinic believing she had the flu. She was rushed to the hospital by ambulance. Within hours, she died due to complications from pneumonia. Just 19, Linda's older son was now untethered from the world with no restrictions on his violent impulses and deadly aspirations. After his girlfriend broke up with him in 2016 claiming abuse, he stalked her and then threatened to kill her. He said he couldn't date other girls because he scared them. Just months before she died, Linda had to sell their house, no longer able to afford it. And he was now an orphan. In 2017, he was expelled from JROTC and also expelled from his high school. But the specific reason for the high school expulsion is unclear. Multiple theories circulated among the student body. He brought a gun to school. He fought with an ex-girlfriend's boyfriend on school grounds. He threatened other students. He brought bullets to school in his backpack. But there was one thing that was clear to the students, and it became a running joke a very dark joke on campus. If there ever was a mass shooting at their school... They knew who would be the killer. I knew it. We all did. Everybody who knew him, we knew it. All of us who had known him had kind of a gist that 
if anything was really to happen at the school, like a shooting, that he probably was the only one with enough hate to do so. He was the only person that could, even before they announced that he was the shooter, we all knew it was He was the only person that we could think of that would do something like this. Now orphaned, the two brothers moved in with a friend of Linda's, Roxanne. Unsurprisingly, it did not go well, and the teenager was kicked out of the friend's house within weeks. The first 911 call occurred because my mother had found a receipt for a gun and bullet that he had purchased. I told him that I was either it was going to be the gun or us. He had to choose. He could not have both. He chose the gun. Homeless for a second time within weeks of his mother's death, the young man settled into the home of another family, Kimberly and James, parents to a friend of his. They knew the young man owned an AR-15. They insisted it was to be kept locked in a gun safe. They spoke with ABC News. Before he moved in, one of the stipulations is he had to get a gun safe. And we got a gun safe on the way back from Lantana from moving his stuff to our house. And they thought they had the only key. They were wrong. January 5th, a person called an FBI tip line. New accounts of missed opportunities. The second warning about news in five months. That call to the FBI came from someone described as close to the shooting suspect. The FBI says the caller provided information about the young man's gun ownership. Desire to kill people. Erratic behavior. Disturbing social media posts. And the potential of him conducting a school shooting. Unlike the previous notification, there was ample information for the FBI to identify the potential shooter. That information should have been passed to the FBI Miami field office. It was not. Towards the end of January 2018, the 19-year-old wrote a note to himself on his cell phone. Life is a mess. I just want to kill people, but I don't know how to do it. He even speculated about going to a park to commit murder. In the days and weeks later, he scoured the internet with search terms like, is killing people easy? Crime scene cleanup. Therapists. And homicidal urges. He obsessively listened to a song called Pumped Up Kicks. All the other kids with the pumped up kicks. You better run faster than my bullet. Four days before Valentine's Day, he watched videos about the shootings at Columbine and Virginia Tech. Three days before, he recorded a video saying, I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. My goal is at least 20 people. With an AR-15 and a couple tracer rounds, I think I can get it done. Location is Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, Florida. So here's the plan. I'm going to take an Uber in the afternoon before 2.40. From there, I'll go onto the school campus. Walk up the stairs load my bags, get my AR, and shoot people down. People will die. Stranger's Welcome is the third episode of Scalpel. The arsonist falling short of his effort to burn down the Dar al-Arkham mosque. Getting another caller who stated there's a shooting at the synagogue that's disconnected. Hey, they're saying it's a white male in the front of the synagogue. I hear like a bomb, like hard, and then look at me and shot. It's not like movies, like you have to hide so you won't get shot and stuff. But it was like 
too scary to not cry. I don't really feel safe because this is not the first and definitely not the last time. Subscribe to Stoppable today on your favorite podcast apps. After you subscribe, please rate, review, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you want to learn more about Stoppable, please go to stoppablepod.com. That's S-T-O-P-P-A-B-L-E-P-O-D dot com. On the morning of Valentine's Day, the friend's parents try to wake up the teenager to go to his classes at the alternative education facility he was attending. He told them he never attended school on Valentine's Day. Getting dressed for the day, he put on his JROTC uniform, a shirt he had saved even after he was expelled from the program. Around noon, he started a series of texts with someone from Stoneman Douglas, his former girlfriend. Here is the police officer who pulled the text from his cell. The conversation between Nick using the phone number 954-821-1007 and the contact warning love of your life. And these messages started at 12.42 and 52 seconds in the afternoon with an outgoing message that said, Hey, then do you want me to go away, Angie? Another outgoing message, I need to know. Then an incoming response, you're scaring me and I want you to leave me alone. Dot, 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 dot. Like, leave you alone for good? Angie, I need to know. Hello, Angie, it's very important. A response comes in, says, I'm in class. I can't just text you whenever you want me to. So stop that annoying double texting and be respectful and let me answer when I can. It was at this point the Uber arrived. Well, he was on on the, on the phone, that's all. There's an outgoing message that says, I love you. You will always know I love you. An outgoing message of a crying face. Eat well, sleep well, and behave well, my love. Symbols that represent an an emoji, uh, joyful. Then incoming message. You know I have a boyfriend, right? No, I don't. Doesn't matter anymore. I've told you that before, and so has Gigi. Angie, you're the love of my life. IDC, which means I don't care. If you have a boyfriend, you're the greatest person I have ever met. I love you. Two minutes later, when they arrived at his destination, the young man gave the Uber driver explicit directions on where to drop him off. When we arrived to the light, I, the, the app from Uber was showing me that to go straight. And in the light, he told me to, to turn to left. The passenger wanted to be dropped off at the front gate near Building 1200, where freshman classes were held. A student from Stoneman Douglas and a former friend of the shooter explained. Because I was an avid hunter, I thought about it from like a hunter's perspective. The freshman building is very difficult to get out of. And when you think about it from the way that a hunter might have, which was the way that thought about a lot of things, that was an easy target. Picking up his backpack and black duffel bag, the 19-year-old walked towards the school from where he had been expelled the previous year, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I walked out of the classroom, made a left past 12, room 1217, I believe it was. He had a rifle in his hands, and he said to me, get out of here, things are about to get bad. Our daughter was a freshman in the freshman building, 
Hers was literally the first classroom on the first floor. The shooter had gone to her room, banged on the glass pane of the door with the butt of his gun, said, let me in, let me in. And for some reason, he didn't do anything. At 2.21 hours and 33 seconds, the suspect readied his rifle and began shooting into room 1216, 12-14, he went back to 12-16, back to 12-15, and then to 12-13. sounded like he just went down the hall, and he probably was like 5, 10 feet away from me and the group of friends that we were hiding in an open-door classroom. We are lucky to be alive. The suspect then took the west stairwell to the second floor and shot one victim in room 1234. 1234 on the second floor. She kind of, um, you know, falls back. There's blood everywhere. And then, you know, we keep hearing gunshots. It's like they literally, like, will not stop. I heard them go up and up. The suspect then took the east stairwell to the third floor. We got close enough, mind you, this is probably five or six minutes after that first text the police were getting there, cordoning off the streets. What is your emergency? Hi, my daughter just uh, texted me from school. She's at Marjorie Stillman Douglas in Parkland, and she says there's an active shooter. My God, this is, this is gonna be one of those situations where this is the most horrific thing that's ever happened. When the assassin reached the top of the three-floor building 1200, he hoped to use that vantage point to shoot more students and faculty. But Parkdale, being situated in an area prone to hurricanes, had installed impact-resistant windows. Glass so strong it could withstand up to 200 mile-per-hour winds. And, as the scooter discovered, rounds fired from an AR-15. Frustrated and disappointed, the shooter abandoned his weapon in the stairwell left the building, and, wearing his JROTC shirt, blended in with other students fleeing the campus. Here is Laurie, the mother of a freshman at the high school. The perpetrator was still on the loose. No one was even sure if there was one, two, three shooters. I saw some kids coming out that had blood on their clothing. 20 minutes later, he stopped at a sub shop and purchased a soda not knowing the police were looking for a white male ROTC uniform. Ten minutes later, the killer walked into another fast food restaurant, sat for a few minutes and departed. Police arrested him in a nearby neighborhood less than two hours after he began his murderous rampage. In the years leading up to the Parkland High School massacre on February 14, 2018, the deadliest school shooting in recent times, how many inflection points occurred where either people or systems failed? What was missed along the way that would have made this crime stoppable? Here again is Laurie. Do you think this case was stoppable? In my personal opinion, a thousand percent. Tony, you've gone through the whole case, right? Do you think this was stoppable? I think, yes, most definitely it was stoppable. There were just so many opportunities. It's almost hard to believe that this attack wasn't stopped. 
I mean, at a systemic level, it's astounding that the FBI failed to act on the very specific warnings and information that they received to their tip line. In fact, in 2018, the Department of Justice paid the families impacted by the shooting in Parkland over $127 million. But they said that it wasn't, quote, an admission of fault by the United States. This is the same kid who, in school, his, all his peers were, were clear, like, if there was going to be a, a mass shooter, it would be him. So he'd been raising flags for years. He brought a gun to school, was not reported. He brought hunting knives to school several times, tried to sell them. Still not reported. The school knew he was a threat, right? Because he was banned from bringing his backpack to school. So they knew that if he brings a backpack, who knows what he's carrying in it. So it's not as though they didn't know. It's just what they did about it. No, and, and there's one teacher who said he wasn't allowed in her class without being accompanied by a school administrator. Yeah. And that was middle school. That was middle school. Yes. And, then he, and he has like, he breaks the bathroom sink. Again, middle school. That's major anger issues there. You know, and I, I ask myself the question, is there a certain level of denial? They just don't want to accept that that's even possible from a human being? Yeah, I think that's always going to be the case, right? Do you really, if we know someone who is, I don't know, their behavior shifts, right? They're talking about killing people. Do we really want to think that, like, our friends or family, like they're actually going to kill another person. How, how do you process that? The reality uh, and the potential doesn't compute with what the average person knows about human decency. What do you actually do? Right? In this case, and, and you know, we use a language like, were they a bystander, right? Did they see something, right? And, and there was a lot of bystanders throughout his life. But was there anyone who acted? Was there an upstander, someone who's willing to take action on it? I would say in this case, there were times. Most of the reporting, though, happened to law enforcement. But even those dots were not connected. No. And I think, like, there's just <laughs> so, so many. many. There were so many, right? Like, the risk factors in his life kept coming up and up. And the thing about risk factors is they're not, and this is the problem people face, right, with risk factors is they're not predictive. This one person can have many different risk factors, right? Like, not having parents, not having stability, having... Um, social, emotional issues, and yet never commit an act of violence. And then there are those who do. Their network, their friends and family wondering, should I? Should I say something? But, but the other question is, who should they say something to? Right? And that comes up because you report it to a teacher, but does the teacher then report it to the administration, to the SROs, but will the SRO act? Right? Are they hooking up with law enforcement? Like, what's playing out? Because you know, the other thing was that the mother called the police 43 times, right? And was that linked that this is the same kid who's also having all these behaviors at school? And, and you think about the level of aggressive behavior that must be going on the household for a mother to call the authorities on their son or sons 43 times. But this is also the same kid who, when the mother... Um, tried to stop him from using his Xbox or took the Xbox, he actually threw his mother against the wall, right? The, there's a, the banker, and they were just at the bank, right? And she noticed the bruising and the fact that the kid was actually threatening to kill his mother and openly, openly making those threats. You wonder if, if you know, going back to the, the denial comment, what about desensitization? It's, it's, it becomes 
the extreme behavior becomes so normal for that individual as, as you, cause you're around it, observing it in that individual all the time. It ceases to become alarming after the hundredth incident or the 150th incident. It's just, oh, that's, he's got these challenges that, that we're, we're trying as an institution to, to deal with, uh, or we're, we're classmates who are watching you know, in, 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 in every moment of every day, this extreme behavior, whether it's the artwork, whether it's the bringing knives to school, whether it's the things he says and, and the threats he makes to people, it is part of the challenge that it's considered normal for that person. And, and, and as, as a bystander to a certain level, it, we become desensitized to it. I mean, maybe you can say that for other cases. I won't say for this one, because in this one, he didn't just say things, he acted on them, mm -hmm. right? And that was the difference. So it wasn't just that the, it's that, oh, you're, you're desensitized to what he's saying. He actually, actually acted on it, right? The fact that he um, broke a bathroom sink, right? The fact that he was violently aggressive. Again, and and then, so it's, they knew he acted out also. The fact he was bringing, what, decapitated animals, this is not just a, oh, someone who's just saying stuff. He was actually doing it. So I think there's a place where you can get desensitized, but our systems have to still um, catch this playing out because it was escalating and it had been escalating. So, you know, even if they didn't stop it or couldn't catch it in middle school, by the time he hit high school, right, there should have been something done about it. Yeah, and it, it, it's not for a second that I'm suggesting it's, it's an excuse as to why things didn't happen, but is, is it something we have to be on guard for? Yes, yes, definitely. We don't want to be in a place where we're always thinking the worst of people we know. But at the same time, if you're seeing someone going through a crisis, right, and they are like, they are escalating their aggression, right, at that point in time, we do need to figure out, okay, how do we get them help? And the thing is that, you know, and for the students, there was only so much they could do themselves, right? It's not as though they will suddenly know what to do. But that's where the, you know, they, and this is for any school, right? They should be able to reach out to the teachers. They should be able to reach out to the guidance counselor, to the school resource officers, all those things in place. You can't expect the students to figure it out. When they're seeing things, they have to be able to, they have to be reminded. We, I mean, all of us have to be reminded that we actually need to do something. How do we help the person? before it escalates to the point that they are going to, that they even get to the point where they're killing someone. Right? That, that should, that we should try to be, we should be doing everything to prevent it so far ahead of time. We have to be willing to step up and say, okay, let's try to get the person help, which is very hard to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very hard to do. Because you know, we, you know, there's always the balance with, with the person's rights and their civil liberties and... Yes. And what can be shared? Yes, yes. So with Florida, actually, um, after Parkland shooting, they have actually brought in new legislation where uh, behavioral threat assessment teams are now mandatory. Right? And that's, that's a shift. And the thing about those teams is that they're not just the psychologist and the school resource officers. They also include law enforcement and, for example, they might include community members or family members. So, so it's supposed to be more holistic um, to see, okay, what's, what's playing out? Because, you know, one of the failures with, um, 
in this case with Parkland High School, is that every system, every side was seeing problems, and yet they weren't connecting it to say that, okay, this is, we are seeing exactly the same aggression in every different sector and let's connect it. And that's something that these, uh, these new teams uh, should be able to deal with better. I know in some, some jurisdictions, they don't um, call them threat assessment teams anymore. They call them care teams. And then the question is, do you have the space and the time to actually invest um, in trying to prevent it? Because it's possible. And as you said, it's possible to prevent, but you have to be thinking about it. These events are stoppable. Most of these events are stoppable, yes. We honor the lives of the victims of the Parkland shooting. Alyssa Alhadef, Scott Bagel, Martin Duke, Nicholas Doret, Aaron Feiss, Jamie Gutenberg, Chris Hickson, Luke Hoyer, Cara Lafren, Gina Montalto, Joaquin Oliver, Elena Petty, Meadow Polak, Helena Ramsey, Alex Schachter, Carmen Shentrup, Peter Wang. And we remember the survivors, the families, and all the people who were impacted by this terrible tragedy that was stoppable. Nicholas Cruz pled guilty to 17 counts of murder and attempted murder. He was sentenced to 20 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole and 14 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 20 years served before the possibility of parole. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stoppable. Stoppable is made possible through the hard work of our team. Adnan Ansari, executive producer. Paul Woodhull, head writer. Dr. A.E. Rogers, researcher. Peter Ogburn, producer. Mario Solis Marich, producer. And Hunter Sense, associate producer. I am your co-host, Tony McAleer. And I'm your co-host, Homera Khan. For more information, please go to stoppablepod.com. That's S-T-O-P-P-A-B-L-E-P-O-D.com. 